RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. This episode of Priority One is brought to you by our Patreon supporter, Jim DeVico. We thank him and all our other patrons for their monthly support. Command codes verified. Priority One message from Starfleet coming in on secure channel. Hello, Captains. You're listening to episode 355 of Priority One, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, and your weekly report from all things in the Star Trek multiverse, recorded live on Tuesday, February 20th, 2018, and available for download or streaming on Friday, February 23rd at PriorityOnePodcast.com. I'm Elijah. And I'm Kenna. All right, Kenna, why don't you tell us what we've got coming up this week? Well, this week we check out Vulcan Canada and their new threads. Shatner signs a record deal. Voyager makes it to a science journal. CBS and Viacom are added again in the rumor mill. And we've got comments on season two of Discovery from Gretchen Berg and Aaron Harberts. In Star Trek Online news, 3D ships are coming, the kind you can print out. And then Dr. Robert Hurt will join us for a special edition of our Astrometrics report. Finally, it's our last on screen for a while as we recap the first season of Star Trek Discovery. And as always, before we wrap up the show, we'll open hailing frequencies for your incoming messages. Captains, you know we love to hear from you each week, so please reach out to us. Don't be scared. We're on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Priority One Podcast. We're on Twitter at Priority One Pod. You can even send us an email to incoming at Priority One Podcast.com. Captains, have you ever thought about working with Priority One? Well, now's your chance. It takes a lot of time and work to compile and edit the show each week, and our dedicated team is stretched a wee bit thin. So if you've got experience with audio editing and can spare an hour or two a week, we could use your help. If you're interested, we've got a handy form on our website, or just email us at incoming at PriorityOnePodcast.com. Captains, we've hit our Patreon goal. That's right. Thanks to your support, Priority One can keep producing this show from week to week. The lights stay on, and the content keeps coming. Now, there are other ways that you can, in fact, contribute to Priority One Podcast. And one of those ways is by sharing this show with your friends on Twitter or Facebook. You can also leave us a review, give us a thumbs up wherever you download your podcasts. Every little bit helps, especially via social media. Again, we're very grateful for our existing patrons who have helped us reach our monthly goals. And if you're interested for additional content from Priority One, for instance, our separate on-screen podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash Priority One. Now let's check out the latest news from the Star Trek multiverse. I don't know. Then let's trek it out. The Vulcan Council has just approved a budget to update outdated uniforms. The cost? $4,340 Canadian. 
No, the planet Vulcan doesn't conduct business in Canadian currency. I'm referring, of course, to the small Canadian town of Vulcan, which is about 130 kilometers southeast of Calgary. The town of approximately 2,000 residents, with an identity largely affected by the Star Trek mythos, has long dressed elected town officials in Star Trek regalia, and the age of the adornments are showing. The current Starfleet jackets have been kicking around for a while, passed down from council to council, with one jacket being in service for nearly 17 years. On February 12th, the council approved the funds for the updated uniforms. From the VulcanAdvocate.com, quote, Local resident Catalin Berta quoted the town a price that amounts to $620 per jacket. She estimated the cost of the fabric will be $140 and labor $480. Berta believes it will take 24 hours to complete each jacket and is charging $20 per hour to complete the work. The total cost is estimated at $4,340 for new jackets for the six councillors and the mayor to be made. End quote. I don't know why they didn't order it from uh, Cosplay Sky. Probably would have saved <laughs> uh, them well, some No, money. Cosplay Sky is no longer doing Star Trek. Uh, <gasps> that's a but shame. that's quite a lot of money for Albert, for Vulcan. You know, I, is it taxpayer money? What is that money coming from? I'm just curious. Well, yeah, it'll be taxpayer money. I assume. I assume. Big asterisk. I assume. That's actually $620 for a jacket that one of them lasted 17 years. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. That's true. That's true. And yeah. and the fact that 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 Vulcan Alberta um, is very much steeped in Star Trek mythos. Like they've mm-hmm. built it for themselves. It's a it's a it's a tourist spot. Kind of one of those places that if you're a real diehard Trekkie, you kind of want to try to make it to just to mm-hmm. just to say you've been there. Um, so you know what? I'm pretty sure that the people of of Vulcan aren't that upset with the price tag. No, what it doesn't mention um, in the newspaper is uh, how much it costs to get all of their, uh, the Mounties, because obviously they're Mounties because they're in Canada, uh, new phasers. <laughs> it's just, you've got nothing to say. Insert cricket sound here. If you've ever looked at your treasured William Shatner musical anthology and and pined for more, then you're in luck, because William Shatner has signed with country music label Heartland Records Nashville and is reportedly working on a, quote, very special project, end quote, due out later this year. As for that previous mention of Mr. Shatner's discography, he has eight previous releases, including The Transformed Man and Seeking Major Tom. Check out the AOL.com link in the show notes and continue to listen here because we'll bring you more information as it becomes available. Because I'm a rocket man. <sighs> that was pretty good, right? That was, that was good. good. It's never going to top Tambourine Man, though. Yeah, because it, do, do you remember? Do you remember the, ah, oh, geez, it was the MTV Movie Awards one year. It was the year that Seven was nominated for everything. And in the MTV Movie Awards, uh, William Shatner reenacted the, the movie Seven, but he played all of the parts, <laughs> including the head in the this, box yes. at the end, which when you yeah. open it, he sang Tambourine Man, and it was just, that is forever burned into my brain. You know, Patrick Stewart's done country, so why not William Shatner? Star Trek has stimulated our imagination, inspired our greatness, and provided hope for a better future. 
It has also given us many hours of beautiful, poignant, interesting, and exciting entertainment over its 50-plus years. But it's also given us Threshold, Voyager's much maligned Season 2 episode. Now, for those of you wise or lucky enough to have forgotten the plot, it features Captain Janeway and Tom Paris being turned into space salamanders after achieving the ever-elusive Warp 10. It's a silly, absurd premise, but not so absurd for so-called predatory journals. 30-year biologist and Star Trek fan BioTrekkie submitted the plot's summary as an actual scientific research paper. From Space.com, quote, He submitted it to 10 open-access journals known or suspected of charging authors publication fees without providing the editorial services associated with legitimate journals, such as careful peer review and vetting of the paper's claims. Four accepted it, though only one, the American Research Journal of Biosciences, published the paper, end quote. There was little change to the plot, and the author actually used the term warp, and even listed Voyager's six crew members as co-authors. For more information on the paper and predatory journals, check out the link in the show notes. I cannot believe that this made it into... <laughs> I mean, I How? guess I suppose How? I can believe it, I, because it's like it, I mean, on top of that, it's one of the one of the worst episodes of Voyager. I mean, <laughs> it's ridiculous. Just, how do you how do you even spin that to sound scientific? I do, I just don't even understand how you spin it. No, I, I. Well, I think with the with the right jargon, with the right format, you could make it appear to be scientific. But you're right. Uh, a legitimate kind of journal would take one look at that and go, um. No. I saw that episode. Like, any science. Yeah, like, <laughs> exactly. seriously. Exactly. Um, I mean, I guess it looks like what, what they're trying to do here is uh, is identify places that are right. basically right. not legitimate um, journals of science, which is really important in today's day and age of fake news. It's really important to be able to identify a, a legitimate source of scientific news versus somebody else who... Uh, is just paying for whatever comes. So it's doing a great service, but man, how to be caught out. That's that's bad. Well, we are once again hearing reports that CBS and Viacom are discussing mergers. This week, CBS head Les Moonves and Viacom CEO Bob Backish continued meetings, and both companies have made requests for due diligence, reports CNBC. What does that mean for the merger? Well, nothing yet, but it is progress and we'll continue to monitor the situation as it develops. Links, of course, to the CNBC report will be in the show notes. Star Trek Discovery has generated a lot of internet chatter, as we know, and showrunners Gretchen J. Berg and Aaron Harberts are doing a great job of stoking that fire. In an interview with Entertainment Tonight, Berg and Harberts discussed what could be in store for season two. Of note, they addressed the Enterprise's role. Aaron Harbert said, quote, It's certainly time to get the audience understanding that we fully intend to respect the original series and respect where Discovery falls in that. To do that, we have to show the Enterprise and at least have these ships cross paths, end quote. He continued by saying, quote, More than anything, it is about what new stories does this provide for our crew, for Michael Burnham, for Saru, for Tilly. Our main interest is discovery. However, if the presence of the Enterprise can show us new things about our crew, the better. End quote. Head to ET Online for more of the interview by following the link in our show notes. Well, that wraps up the news this week from the Star Trek multiverse. Now, 
Let's go over to gaming for Star Trek Online News. Computer status report. Status. Incoming message. I'm only in the mood for good news today. There were two tech stories released this week that all of you fans of Immersion will certainly enjoy. First, titled Lingua Iconia, we're on New Romulus as we explore how a Romulan and Riemann duo came up with the idea to combine Duan and Romulan technology for the new Allied pilot ships. In the second blog titled Jace's Navy Interstellar Through the Valley, we get some immersive storytelling regarding the destruction and refit of both the USS Enterprise F and its sister ship, the Yorktown. Told from the perspective of a reporter on the ground, we get some insight into Captain Sean's experiences thus far as captain of the Enterprise F, along with information regarding its refit. In tying with Star Trek Online's storytelling, the interview ends when the Enterprise is called to defend Deep Space Nine from an unknown enemy, which we find out later is the Herc. These are definitely immersive stories oh, yeah. for diehard fans <laughs> of Star Trek Online's uh, story arc. They don't necessarily fill in gaps, but they certainly expand on the existing story that that we experience in the gameplay. Yeah, definitely. And if you're if you're a ship fan, which let's be honest, <laughs> a lot of people that play Star Trek Online are, um, these are like a nice little sort of backfilled story on on how these ships get created. Because even so, the first one, the Lingua Iconia one, we actually get a a little bit of a feel for the actual mechanics that are going on. You know, which is nice because I think over the past sort of year and a half to two years, maybe. The ships, um, they've been creating new types of traits and new consoles and new weapons that do funky things in this um, attempt to kind of balance everything and give people more options, right? And the creation of the story behind what these weapons and abilities are is almost as interesting as the actual, you know, the ship's stats and everything themselves. So uh, you get a little peek into that kind of action actually happening in universe in Lingua Iconia, which I really, really love. Now, Captains, the big news this week is we will soon be able to 3D print our ships. Yay! Yay, finally again! (laughs) Now, you may remember that in October 2016 at the Mission New York convention, Star Trek Online had debuted and announced that they had gotten into a deal with a 3D printing company so that players can actually own a physical copy of their in-game ship. Now, unfortunately, that company went defunct and bankrupt, and that deal, unfortunately, fell through. However, that doesn't mean that the team at Star Trek Online weren't hard at work to try to make that plan a reality again. And now they've teamed up with a company called Mixed Dimensions, which will give us the opportunity to finally own a physical copy of our ships. Now, not much is known about the pricing for these ships. One of the big questions is whether or not the ships will be able to be sold and printed internationally. It was confirmed via a live stream session with executive producer Steven Salami Inferno Ricosa that the ships will in fact be able to be purchased internationally. Again, prices have not been discussed yet, but what we do know is that there will be different tiers that you can print for your ship. For instance, the basic printout will just be a blank slated resin printout of your ship. You can also select a bronze or a gold ship that you can hang on the wall like Captain Picard in his ready room. 
You broke your little ships. And the top tier is a fully printed and hand-painted version of your ship. That's right, hand-painted. That one's probably gonna set you back a couple of hundred bucks is what I would imagine, especially that it's hand-painted. Now, from the pictures, these ships look remarkable. Now, remind me, Elijah, because it's now been a couple of years at what the ships were like before, and are these ones do you think are gonna be comparable? So the prototypes that I saw at the New York City convention um, were certainly impressive. What they did was, as the 3D print was happening, it was also printing the color as well. Uh, but the colors were were a little faded. They they because it was a 3D print, it was a little faded, and you can you you could see the layering of the 3D print from these pictures. These models look smooth, beautifully smooth, uh, where it it looks like a cast model and not a 3D print. The colors are much more vibrant because they're hand painted. They're painted, yeah if you decide to go that that route. Um, so it's it's just, be, so far they look beautifully detailed and, and I'm really impressed and pleased that they were able to find a company that, that, would, uh, that could do this. Um, more importantly, that can do this with such remarkable detail. Yeah, honestly, I'd kind of like let it go. <laughs> After the whole thing fell through a couple years ago, I thought, well, that's it. I mean, and they did, they did to their credit, they did tell us that, you know, they were trying to find a new person, but you know, it, it, it took a while, but it sounds like they've finally found a company that's, that is able and willing to do, um, the kind of the standard that, um, that cryptic wanted for these ships. And, and honestly, they look incredible. I actually happen to love the fact that you can get one not colored. You can get it, um, either single color or pre-primed so that you could paint it yourself. I love that. I know that there are a lot of people who really enjoy model building. And while you couldn't really do like a model of your own ship, like, you know, to put the pieces together, you'd still potentially mm -hmm. be able to do the painting piece of it. So that's that's like a really nice touch to have that available because I know that there are hobbyists out there who will love to do that. So. I'm, I'm really excited. Uh, I would love to see one of these in person. Hopefully I'll get a chance to at some point. Um, and like, yeah, well, like you said, all that's all that's left is to wait for the pricing, I suppose. Now, what we what we also found out in that live stream that Star Trek Online had done with with uh, Stephen Rocosa was that uh, not all the ships will be available, but it looks like only 15 or so ships will be unavailable. And one of the ships that were mentioned, for instance, were the Iconian Herald ships because they're essentially just a bunch of floating pieces. Mm. And so obviously <laughs> that, that, can, that can't be that, done. That would be interesting. <laughs> be that as it may, I mean, if, you know, they, they've, they've been showing off the Pathfinder and you can see, you know, negative space in the printout, for instance, in the, in the hull and, and saucer section uh, of, of this particular ship. It, it just looks remarkable. And again, you don't get that 3D layering that you normally see with 3D printed models. Um, these look solid and smooth and, and absolutely gorgeous. With respect to the pricing and, and how soon we can get it, according to the blog, it could be as early as March that we can start ordering our ships and all of it will be done in the game, according to Steven Rocosa and the blog. When you go to the shipyard, there'll be an update to the UI that will allow you to purchase the ship directly in the game. According to Rikosa, he also explains that there might be a bit of a lag due to the nature of the upload of your model, so you may find that the game hangs a little bit as you order your ship. But again, 
more details are to follow according to Cryptic Studios and the blog and the live stream of the announcement. And lastly, before we wrap up Star Trek Online news, there's a big event on that you'll want to know about. Console players can take advantage of a featured episode replay from now until March 8th. Get yourself an Ophidian Cane or the Shard of Possibilities. Each of these rewards is only available for a limited time during these replays. A link with the details of the replayable episodes and the rewards will be in our show notes. Well, that wraps up the news from Star Trek Online this week. Now let's get a report from the Astrometrics Lab by science advisor Dr. Robert Hurt. I'm sure there is an answer. Well, better get some facts. For this week's Astrometrics Report, we're going to revisit my favorite system of exoplanets. It's known as TRAPPIST-1. And if you remember the news from last year, NASA made a pretty big splash when we announced the discovery that this system discovered by ground-based observatories actually had a total of seven Earth-sized worlds orbiting a tiny dwarf star, hardly any bigger than Jupiter. Now, about a year later, some new studies have shown there are some striking similarities between this system and planets in our own solar system, including Venus and even Earth. These new results hinge on the fact that, for the first time, we've been able to accurately determine the masses of a system of exoplanets, some of them with errors as little as 5%. This is absolutely unprecedented, though, to a Star Trek viewing audience, it might not seem so remarkable. In our favorite sci-fi shows, we're incredibly used to the idea that you zip into a new system and with a few punches of button have determined pretty much everything there is to know about the planets, including their masses. The reality is it's not nearly so easy. In fact, when we detect exoplanets around other stars, we only tend to obtain very minimal information the amount of time it takes them to go around the star, and some measurement of what their size is. Accurate mass measurements just isn't in the cards for the bulk of the thousands of exoplanets that have been discovered so far. However, this particular system has some unique properties that has made it possible to do a never-before kind of determination. All of the planets in the TRAPPIST-1 system are about the size of Earth, or a little smaller. But what makes it so interesting to astronomers is that the spacing between the planets is incredibly close, not really that much further than the spacing between the major moons around Jupiter. This means that they have enough of a gravitational effect on each other that they can kind of mess up the timings of their orbits around the star. These so-called transit timing variations are of the order of a few minutes, but because we can so precisely measure the transits in the TRAPPIST-1 system, that means that we can actually, with enough observations, figure out exactly how much each planet must have in order to account for the little schedule variations that we observe in the data. It turns out that NASA's Spitzer Space Telescope is particularly sensitive to the light from this cool, dim star that actually is predominantly glowing in the infrared, the part of the spectrum that Spitzer sees. To date, Spitzer has spent over 1,100 hours studying this system alone, and combining these observations with data from the Kepler mission, as well as ongoing ground-based observations, scientists have been able to piece together the planetary masses which also allows them to calculate the densities of each of these planets. This is really important because density is the first real measurement we can make to start to determine what the composition of these planets could be. Now, it doesn't tell us specifics, 
but it does give us a number that we can compare directly with, say, the planets in our own solar system that we know pretty well, and perhaps start to draw some parallels. For instance, the planet TRAPPIST-1e actually is about the same size as Earth, it has almost the same density, and it receives maybe just a little bit less light than Earth does, but proportionally more than Mars does. If ever we found a possible candidate for an Earth-like world with possible liquid oceans on the surface, this might be the one. Moving inward one planet to TRAPPIST-1d, we find a planet that proportionally gets about as much light from its star as Earth does from the Sun. Now, this planet is a lot smaller than Earth, but it's also a lot less dense. According to some planetary models, this means that its composition might be as much as 5% water by mass, which is hugely more than Earth, which is only about 0.02% water by mass. This could truly be a water world with unimaginably deep oceans and not a landmass to be seen. Moving inward one more planet to TRAPPIST-1c, we find a world that has the same size, the same density, and the same illumination levels from its star as our own planet Venus. By every metric that we can currently measure, it's as close to a twin as you could imagine. The outer planets in the system all are slightly lower density than Earth, which means they too could have fairly rich water components, though they would be increasingly cold and may have more and more ice on their surfaces. In the meantime, the Hubble Space Telescope has also been scrutinizing these worlds, but in this case, looking for evidence of hydrogen gas in the atmospheres of the planets. Now this is important, because if these worlds were actually more like tiny versions of Neptune, you would expect hydrogen to dominate the upper atmosphere. However, Hubble has been able to rule that out for the inner planets, reinforcing this interpretation based on the densities that they are indeed rocky worlds, and may in fact bear striking similarities to the planets we see in our own solar system. Of course, determining that these are rocky worlds, and may well be rich with water in some cases, is still a long ways away from determining whether or not they are potentially habitable or even inhabited. It turns out that ultra-cool red dwarf stars are actually kind of unfriendly in a lot of ways. They're very prone to ultraviolet flares, which could be very hostile to the development or the sustaining of life on their surfaces. But there's a lot we don't know yet. Even so, it's pretty amazing to realize that we can actually claim we know more about the TRAPPIST-1 planets than any other planets in the galaxy, aside from the ones in our own solar system. And given that they're really in the solar neighborhood, only about 40 light years away, you can bet they're going to be the subject of ongoing examination. One way or another, TRAPPIST-1 really stands out as a kind of laboratory for studying what Earth-sized planets would be like under varying conditions. No doubt what we learn here will be incredibly valuable applying to other systems we find around other types of stars in the galaxy. If you'd like to know more about the TRAPPIST-1 system, we'll provide some links in the show notes to some recent press releases and a couple of videos that I've had the good fortune to work on with some of my colleagues to help really tell the story of this amazing system of Earth-sized worlds. That wraps it up for this week's Astrometrics Report. Now, let's go see what's on screen. On screen. And a big thanks to Dr. Robert Hurt for this month's Astrometrics Report. Now, we're about to see what's on screen. 
with a recap and review of this season in Star Trek Discovery with special guests Dr. Robert Hurt and Al Captain Gecko Rivera of Star Trek Online. Hey everyone. Hello. How could I resist the possibility to be the voice of dissent whenever you start talking about how much you wanted this all streamed in one big lump? <laughs> Ken, I wanted to give us a recap choose. of season one of Star Trek Discovery. So let's start with Takuvba. He's a Klingon zealot wishing to unite the 24 Klingon houses in the name of Kales. And he acquires cloaking technology and sets out to start a war with the Federation. Then there's Michael Burnham, a young Starfleet lieutenant commander and ward to respected Vulcan ambassador Sarek. She commits treason by neck-pinching her mentor, Captain Philippa Giorgio, and attempts to fire on the Klingon vessel, a Vulcan hello. Takuvma's newest torchbearer, Voke, a Klingon outcast with a fierce belief in Takuvma's teachings, calls for a Klingon armada to meet Starfleet at the Binary Stars. Both sides are reinforced and fight to a stalemate. Giorgio and Takuvma are killed. Voke and fellow Takuvma follower Laurel are left stranded, and Michael Burnham is charged with treason. Burnham is sentenced to life in prison, but through a series of fortunate events, becomes a specialist on the USS Discovery under the command of Captain Gabriel Lorca. The Discovery is using an experimental engine known as a spore drive, but its lead designer, Lieutenant Paul Stamets, can't quite get it to work. The co-designer on the USS Glenn, the Discovery's sister ship, is having more luck until an accident. An away team finds the broken bodies of the Glenn's crew and the means at which to pilot the spore drive, a giant tardigrade. Stamets, Burnham, and young cadet Sylvia Tilly put the tardigrade in the spore drive, enter the coordinates, and the ship jumps to save Corvan II from a Klingon raid. Cole, an ambitious Klingon from House Core, finds the followers of Takuvma and their cloaking device too. The Klingons are starving, so in return for their loyalty, Cole feeds them and takes their cloaking device. The two most steadfast followers of Takuvma, Lorel and Voke, come up with a plan that will cost Voke, quote, everything. With the tardigrade hooked in, the spore drive is functioning and the discovery is becoming a nuisance to Klingon operations. Lorca is captured by none other than Lorel and imprisoned with Lieutenant Ash Tyler and Harry Mudd. Lorca and Tyler hatch a plan and escape the prison ship, leaving the treacherous mud behind, but the Discovery is having difficulty reaching them. It turns out the spore drive is harming the tardigrade, and the team will not expose the creature to any more damage. In a last-ditch effort, Stamets injects himself with tardigrade DNA, allowing him to pilot the mycelial network. Tyler and Lorca are rescued, and the tardigrade is set free. Sarek and Burnham's relationship is explored through long-range mind melds, and Harry Mudd returns, killing and killing and killing again. We learn that Michael has never loved, and why Paul Stamets is with his lover, Dr. Culber. Lorca seduces Admiral Cornwell, then tricks her into representing the Federation in peace talks, despite it being a likely trap. And it was. Though Discovery is doing well against the Klingons, Starfleet is still having serious difficulty with the Klingon cloaking device. Discovery is sent to Pavo, where a naturally occurring crystalline broadcast tower is located and can hopefully be converted to a giant sonar tower. 
Things don't go as planned, and the Pavans use the tower to contact the Klingons, hoping the two sides will come to a peaceful solution. Cole receives the message and sets a course for Pavo. The Discovery crew find a way to break the Klingon cloak. Burnham and Tyler beam to the Klingon ship and place sensors in the pre-designated positions. They also find Cornwell and Laurel, and Ash begins suffering what can only be described as PTSD. The Discovery starts a 133 micro-jump sweep to get a 3D scan of the sarcophagus ship. Burnham distracts the Klingons by challenging Cole to a fight. The jumps are completed, the away team along with Cornwell and Laurel beam back to Discovery, and the Klingon ship is destroyed. They broke the cloak. Stamets volunteers to spore jump one final time, but the jump is altered. The Discovery is in the mirror universe. We meet mirror versions of many of our heroes and discover that Lorca is in fact Terran. He has used Discovery, her crew, and in particular Michael Burnham to return home. His endgame is to overthrow current Emperor Giorgio. Ash Tyler continues to struggle with his PTSD. When Dr. Culber reveals that Ash may be something other than Lieutenant Tyler, he breaks the doctor's neck, killing him mere feet from his boyfriend. Later, Tyler nearly kills Burnham after an encounter with his mirror self, Voke. She is saved by Mirror Saru, the Kelpian slave. Meanwhile, Stamets is plunged into a coma following the ill-fated jump. There, he meets Mirror Stamets, as well as the deceased Dr. Culber, who both explain that the mycelial network is damaged. Dr. Culber further explains that the Terrans are causing the damage, and they must be stopped. The cause of the damage, the crew will soon find out, is the ISS Chiron, which has harnessed mycelial energy into a power source. Burnham has worked out a plan to destroy the ISS Chiron, stop Lorca, and get home, and it works to perfection. The network is saved, Lorca is killed, supposedly, Mira Giorgio beams aboard the Discovery with Burnham, and we are back in Prime, but nine months in the future, and things look bad. The Klingons are winning. After meeting back up with Cornwell and Sarek, a plan is formulated to attack Kronos. Giorgio is given command of the mission, and it seems Starfleet brass aren't telling our heroes everything. After a landing party reaches Kronos, they are betrayed by Terran Philippa. She places a bomb in the planet, and she's under orders to detonate it from Starfleet. Burnham convinces Cornwell that genocide is not Starfleet's way, with the Discovery crew in agreement, and a new plan is enacted. Burnham, with a little convincing, has Mira Giorgio resequence the detonator to Laurel's signature. Laurel, with a now cured ish Tyler, leave to unite the Klingon houses, thus ending the war. Mira Giorgio is given a get out of jail free card. Burnham is pardoned and reinstated, and the crew is given the Medal of Honor. On the way to pick up their new captain, the Discovery receives a distress message from the NCC 1701. Captain Pike, the Enterprise, the end. Or is it? <laughs> dun, right. dun, dun. So, <laughs> before we start giving our constructive criticism about the series and about the season mm -hmm. itself, why don't we talk about some of our most memorable and favorite moments? Why don't we? Why don't we start with that, Doctor? Who wants to go first? <laughs> doctor, how about how, Doctor Her? How about yourself? 
Well, certainly one of my favorite moments in the, in the show had to be that moment where Tilly had to learn to step up to bat and become Killy. And that sequence of transformation that started with her having to adopt that role and I would rip their tongue out and use it to lick my boots, that moment for her, and how that tracked her ever after to become an increasingly strong character, I think building on that pivot point for her, I think was really, really fantastic. Kenna, how about you? There are so many good moments. There are so many bits that I laughed out loud or just like, you know, felt it in my heart. One of the ones that still sticks out to me, and this is way, way back from the beginning, I loved very early on the scene between Dr. Culber and uh, Lieutenant Stamets when they were in the bathroom brushing their teeth. I mean, first of all, their pajamas were rocking. Um, <laughs> But also, I think it was a totally believable depiction of a relationship, and it was lovely to see it be a gay relationship in Star Trek, and it was just, it was a tender moment that set up quite a lot of the plot going forward. I just, I, I really love that, and it, it still sticks out to me as one of my favorite scenes uh, from the whole series. And it was such a powerful moment that it became a pivotal moment of callback in the in the sort of the, the conclusion of that arc. So I yeah, that, that was really lovely. I'd have to say that my favorite moments were ninety uh, percent uh, anything with uh, Mary Wiseman's portrayal of Tilly. Yeah. Everything minus the <laughs> the f bomb drop that that felt yeah. a little gratuitous, but. I think back to some of some of the pivotal moments that could have been season finales. For instance, the climax of getting the Klingon cloak and then jumping one last time and then discovering that they're in the mirror universe. That was yeah. our mid-season finale. And I think that that was so impactful, it could have ended up being a, a season finale. The other moment is when we discover that Lorca is in fact Mirror Lorca. And again, that mm -hmm. episode could have also ended a season. These yeah, were very, very dramatic and impactful cliffhangers that weren't gratuitous cliffhangers where I would have been like, I can't believe they ended it this way. It wouldn't have been a best of both worlds cliffhanger where you really have no idea what's happening but a healthy cliffhanger where we would have eagerly been anticipating a second season. Yeah, those are some of my favorite moments. Well, if I can also jump in and toss one in from the last episode, and it may sound obvious and it may sound cheesy, but you know, for me, the just the emotional peak at that moment that Burnham comes full circle and faces down Admiral Cornell and says, no, we're not going to do this. And after spending the entire season as a pariah on this ship, inspiring loyalty and everyone from Detmer to all the other bridge crew backing her up, because she was professing our ideals and making this about what Starfleet is about, right? That ending worked so spectacularly well for me. And maybe it's because I've been so immersed in dystopian, angsty, everything is miserable, sci-fi for so freaking long, for them to really come back and hit it out of the park and say, we will act as the people we want to be not in our convenience and, and no shortcuts. And everyone who backed her up in that was just stellar. So Al, why don't you tell us what your 
favorite moment was for this season of Star Trek Discovery? The whole season. I guess I had to think about that. I'll talk about a couple moments. I actually really, really liked the pilot. I really liked Takuvma's speech of why he was trying to unify all the Klingons against the Federation, making the Federation an enemy and doing this fear-mongering. I don't know how many people felt that way, but to me that felt like a very political, timely Star Trek thing. This was a very, very powerful sign of the times of this fear-mongering against the Federation about, oh, look, see, they just say they come in peace and you know they just want to take away our way of life. And that just felt so, so poignant for right now. Right from the beginning, that grabbed me very much. There was, at the mid-season finale, I can't remember. There was something that, that, that something that really grabbed me that I thought. I think it was when they were at Pavo, they were ordered to leave. And even though now we know that Lorca was Mira Lorca, when they left, and he said, "We're not going to. Uh, you got to get out of there. Don't do it." And they said, "Okay, we're going to leave." And they left at warp and says, "Why are we? You know, so we're leaving at warp to buy some time to solve a solution." To me, that was at the first moment that the crew really started coming together and like, okay, now. They're a Starfleet crew, and what well, they solve the problem about how to get back, and then they're going to do the 33 jumps or 133 jumps to stop the sarcophagus ship. That moment that felt like something Picard would do, as much as Lorca was an evil jerk, and and, and it was okay. I'm buying you guys time, solve this problem, and they all came together. That was like the first time it felt like a real Star Trek episode for me. Even though I love the show entirely through, that's when it felt like a crew. All right, now I'm going to ask this question: What was your nerdiest geek out moment this season. Kenna, how about you go first? Nerdiest geek out moment? Okay, so you guys know I'm kind of like an audio nerd, like I dig that kind of stuff. Honestly, the sounds, the boops and the beeps and the sweeps and the creeps and all that from the bridge, like every single episode kind of made me go, like every single one, even from, from the first one right to the end, because it's like, my text message ringtone is sounds from Star Trek, and it just made me so happy every time. I I love that you just quoted Spaceballs. Got the beeps, <laughs> the creeps, and the beeps. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's accurate. <laughs> how, how about you, Al? It may be unbiased because it's fresh in my head, but it's got to be Clint Howard. I mean, is it, is it, <laughs> it's <laughs> it's pretty, yeah, <laughs> like because com- I completely did not expect it at all. It's no. like it's Clint Howard, and he was so Clint Howard in that moment. And she, you know, he's trying to steal the thing off her wrist, and she goes, "What are you doing? Well, you're sleeping. So what else should I do? I should just steal it." So <laughs> it was just—it's a fanboy thing. Right. Yeah. It was. Yeah. It wasn't just. Oh, it was the Enterprise showed up. Yeah, that was a powerful moment. But everybody knows that that was just a kind of a real fanboy moment. I'm like, oh, Tranya. Robert, Maybe how about yourself? Feeling. Well, he's now, of course, ruined my moment because as corny as it was, that moment when they start typing out NCC and you know where it's going. I'm glad that Tony isn't here because he would mock me endlessly for this. But you know, <laughs> <laughs> that ultimate mode of fan service and that that build where you know it's going is was, was remarkable. But but maybe if I, I, I skip that moment uh, just to go back where they began referencing the continuity, you know, that you really connected all the way from Enterprise on through TOS and DS9 for all the Mirror Universe stuff, where they 
really started folding in all the knowledge and referencing the Defiant and how it was lost in interphasic space and and the way they worked that whole enterprise plotline into this into the infrastructure what was going on, especially when it turned into um, Giorgio's really snide comment like, "Oh yeah, yeah, that's not going to work for you to get back." They they tore each other apart. That that drives people crazy. That's not going to work. And in like one moment, like their entire hope for getting back was just dashed due to the continuity that, that really stretched between TOS and Enterprise. To, you know, to Robert, I, I really I really liked that moment a lot, and that was because I, I really love that whole nexus in the whole Star Trek universe, that, that so much happens in that nexus moment in the interphasic space when Defiant goes back. But the whole time I'm watching it, I'm like, oh my god, please don't, please don't nullify what we did in Star Trek Online, because we explained how that <laughs> ship went back. Because, oh my god, please don't, please don't, don't, <laughs> please don't <laughs> contradict the story we wrote. I didn't know what was going to happen when they came out and said, oh, this is how the ship came back. And I'm like, oh no, we just did that. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing about this um, series, though, um, where in the past you might have been able to say that, you know, the canon writers didn't care much for, you know, the soft canon or, you know, fans head canon. Um, It felt to me as though this series really kind of uh, had a respect for things that were not quite canon. In that way, I think part of that is led by um, Kirsten Beyer and her sort of role as somebody who's a, the liaison between the writer's room and uh, the novelists. And I, I, I kind of I'm looking forward to seeing where that goes. I mean, I still think we're not we're not considering the novels and things canon, but it's it, it feels as though the writers now are treating that with a little more respect, which is nice. Well, I can that, tell you that kinda, the Discovery novels are considered canon from CBS. That's kind of what I was feeling too, Kenna, is that Star Trek Discovery, some of my favorite moments in Discovery were these small little nuanced Easter eggs. For instance, mm-hmm. the callback to Archer, you know, being that he was the last person to be on Kronos a hundred years ago. When Saru is researching captains, you know, admirable captains, people he wants to model himself after, and you see yeah. Christopher Pike on that list, Jonathan Archer, you know, moments like that made me geek out for certain. Mm-hmm. But to your point, Discovery has certainly spent more time in its own world than it has dropping those Easter eggs, dropping those hints, dropping those canonical hints. And in retrospect, I really appreciate that. I do as well. I feel as though the people who are writing it wanted to give us a little something. They were going in their own direction, which Mm -hmm. was great, but I think they managed to include fans and existing fandom in the show in actually a really positive way. While telling their own story. Yeah, yeah. I think this, for me, was a much better way to not exactly reboot, but reinvigorate Star Trek for a modern audience than what the J.J. movies did, which was Mm -hmm. say, well, let's go back and we're going to keep the look very, very close. But what we're going to do is just rewrite the whole timeline and begin a whole new continuity and throw everything out. You know, it's over 50 years old. There are things that don't play 
in a modern audience. And as a comic book reader for my whole life, seeing how the comic book world constantly reinvents itself by maintaining the thread of continuity, but doing enough retconning in that thread so that the tales, the mythologies stay relevant and tellable and modern, I think actually has worked really well. And it feels like Discovery is, is, is taking that tack. It's like, yes, the continuity is all here. The bits are here. But we are going to take time to redesign you know, the Klingon race. We're going to give them more depth than we've seen at a much more substantive level in their culture. We got a lot of kind of cursory stuff in in uh, you know TNG and and uh, uh, you know a bit deeper in DS9. But I think it's okay to come in and just say, well, it'll look a little different, but at its soul, it's still the same thing. So I want- I'm just really excited that the. Uh- that the season finale legitimized Star Trek Online's uh, alliance between the Orions and the Klingons. Yes, <laughs> yes. I was like, when that moment happened, I was telling everyone in the room, it's like, it's, it's like Star Trek yeah. Online. <laughs> when you're the Gordon and Nothican embassy on, on, on Kronos, and then we're set. <laughs> so now we want to recap a little bit about the overall arc and how this season was treated. I don't think there's a question that this has probably been the best first season for any Star Trek ever created for television. Insofar that in 15 episodes, we have more depth and backstory to characters that we care about than the first 15 episodes of, of TNG or Voyager or Deep Space Nine and or even the original series. Don't go there, man. Don't go there. I I will agree with you up to the point, because the thing is, the original series, you still have to give it credit because it created this out of nothing. Yes, yes. Everything else had a guideline to go through, but I would still say you have to say the first season of TOS was incredible for making this universe exist. Because Roddenberry came in with, with nothing to build on. And that's why I was hesitant to say TOS, because like you mentioned, every series after that has had this guideline like you said to follow but i mentioned this last week i don't think it made it into the final show but somebody on a, on a star trek forum had said we're 15 episodes into discovery think about the 15th episode of tng voyager deep space nine enterprise and where were we like how invested were we in those characters yet And Discovery has done something that few other Trek franchises have done before, which is in 15 episodes, give us some characters to feel invested in, like Michael Burnham, like Saru, like Tilly, like Stamets, like Colbert, in a way that is not conventional to how we fall in love with a bridge crew, like in Voyager, Deep Space Nine, or or, uh, or TNG, or Enterprise. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. It's every time a new Star Trek has come on, it's been biting the bullet and sticking through it because it really has been pretty awful at the beginning with muddling through, particularly TNG and DS9 had really awful first seasons for the most part. Few little bits and gems in there. And the Enterprise, I would say, had just a very flatlined, lame first season. It maybe didn't hit the, 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 the depths, the pits that TNG and DS9 did sometimes in the first season, but it really didn't have a lot of highs either. And this was a pretty remarkable achievement to hit something out of the gate without having to take two or three or four seasons before you finally say, yeah, that's kind of kicking in. I see what it is. Of course, the counter argument to that is that there was too much of that. 
we had too much going on. And certainly when you start talking about the twists and turns, which I know we're not talking about yet, they really threw everything but the kitchen sink at this first season. Now it kind of, I, I think personally on the whole that it worked, but you could make the argument when you compare it to other Trek series that it went a bit like over the top. And I think that that also has to stem from the fact of the argument that we've had this whole series is that, yeah, they threw everything on the kitchen sink to it to try to entice people. It's it's almost as if they walked into this thinking, okay, we're going to do one season. Let's hope it works. And if it does, we'll do a second season. So in that argument, it's in the storyline and the arc, which is one of the reasons why Dr. Hurt was itching to get on is was the story for this season better suited for bingeable consumption or week to week? So, Dr. Hurt, you have the floor. <laughs> well, okay, yes, I, I admit, I did ask to be on, on this particular topic just because you all have been very agreeable amongst yourselves that it should have just all dropped on one weekend and then you would have all been so much happier because you just binged it. But the thing about Star Trek, it is such a social experience that if they had dropped the whole season in one weekend, it would have broken that completely. For one thing, we wouldn't have had a weekly on screen to draw us through, to give us a common shared experience, to look forward to this next episode, to see what you guys are saying about it and how much we agree or disagree. But on top of it, at one point, you guys had actually kind of dinged it for coming out episodically because people were starting to figure out the arcs as if that was a bad thing. And I actually saw that as a, uh, a real uh, bonus for this, that for those who wanted to deep dive into it and spend the time and talk to your friends, you could start to compare notes and you could start to see threads and anticipate the story. And I think that the story hit some anticipated notes as it went forward was actually a testimony to having a really well-structured plot line for it. For me, I kind of compare it back to when the series Babylon 5 came out. You know, that was really changed sci-fi television history because it was the first time that someone came in with a planned out five-year story arc and said, I know where it's going to end and I know everywhere it has to go to get there. And while there were a few twists and turns, you know, you could watch that show and you knew that what was said would have importance later. And the fact that Babylon 5 spawned an entire website that every time an episode dropped, it was like, it like established almost this idea of what happens on Reddit, you know, with new TV shows that people would go, they'd write up like every little analysis, look for the hanging threads and see which things, you know, tied off things that came before. I think that actually builds community engagement very deeply in a way that the series that I've seen that drop all at once don't because I never have an ability to ever really discuss and get involved with these shows with any of my peers who watch it because everyone is on such a vastly different time scale. By the time I watched picture episode that a friend watched three weeks ago, they don't remember enough for us to really get down into the nitty gritty. So anyway, that is my very long <laughs> rant of why I think spooling it out the way they did actually greatly benefited us for having a memorable experience that you know, really is like it spread out for like a quarter of a year that it built it around our lives and gave us that chance to really see in greater depth. Whereas for if you've been through the thing I tend to find is yeah, it's like kind of fun for the ride, but at the end I've like forgotten half of it. I and I you'd have to sit and like re-binge it several times before it kind of sticks without having that opportunity to actually sit and mull over it before the next one hits. 
I completely forgot about the whole Laurel and Cornwell interaction because of the fact that it was weekly. Be that as it may, I want to open the mic to Kenna or Al. I mean, Kenna, I think you've been in agreement that this has been bingeable, right? Is that... You know, my suspicion, and obviously I have no way to confirm it, but my suspicion is that the producers of the show have, you know, from a financial standpoint, two main goals. Number one is to get people signed up in the door for CBS All Access. Now, I know a lot of people are going to expect that people will drop off their subscriptions, but coming from a retail background, if you can get the maximum number of people to look at your product, then you get a conversion rate. If you never get them to look at the product in the first place, then your conversion rate could be, you know, 100% of zero. So getting them in the door is one big draw. Another thing is keeping the longevity. And, you know, in today's climate, um, you know, people like box sets, people like to binge watch, and there's the potential for Discovery to have a much longer shelf life than just the week to week that we're seeing. So I personally think that from a production standpoint, those two goals probably drove a lot of what was going on. However, I cannot disagree with anything that Dr. Hurt said. It's actually a point of view that I hadn't considered, and you're absolutely right, because, I mean, think of what we do week to week, and all the chatter on the internet. We were talking a couple weeks ago and Trek It Out about, was it 53 million impressions or whatever that metric was? It was humongous for Discovery, and not a small part of that is going to be fans debating the look of the bloomin' Klingons, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, there is a point to that. Whether we like it or not is a totally different situation, but I do think that actually the way they've done it is probably pretty effective and on the whole pretty good for the franchise. And you actually reminded me of a point from what she said too, is given also how much appears on the internet immediately, Imagine how completely wrecked this viewing experience would have been given all the incredible twists and surprises it, for the people who hadn't watched it that first weekend and just happened to open up their news feed and started reading about the mirror universe and, and oh, and it's really mirror lurk. And, and if that was all known, and it's really hard to put yourself in a complete media vacuum on something as big as Star Trek by given that surprise is a big element of a lot of this, <laughs> it would have been a completely flat experience for a huge number of people just because it was all done. I, and of course, this will be an experience that will be replicated by the people who are waiting for it to get off of All Access and watch it. I feel like there won't be a lot of surprises left for them. And it'll be interesting to see how they react to the show, kind of already knowing what it's all about. How do you feel, Al? What do you think? Was the show written for bingeable consumption or week to week? Well, I think the show could definitely be bingeable. You could certainly, I think it'd be really enjoyable to watch it bingeable. And that's what I think a lot of us wanted because we just wanted to see more of it. But I mean, you can't argue against these points. It's, it was very powerful for us to have Star Trek over, how long was it? Three months, two and a half months of Star Trek of not only socially talking about it, but then that the actor is talking about it, it's getting picked up on Twitter and Facebook and it's just constantly being talked about. It was, that was a really powerful machine, um, not just for the audience, for audience members to just be engaged with each other and just being really excited every week. It's like, I couldn't wait till Sunday to see that. And everyone was talking about it and we're doing podcasts and the actors are talking about it. 
And so that was a really powerful, fun experience. The only thing that I, I just didn't like is that I didn't get the chance to be surprised on a lot of things because we did have such time. Now, it was good. It was it was really good and powerful that we all got to talk about it. And it was fun to speculate and everything. But I really would have loved to have been surprised about a few things because whether it was through here or through social media or through talking with friends, there were some pieces we put together that I probably wouldn't have put together on my own if I were just watching them back to back. You know, watch Daredevil or, or Punisher or any of those shows. I watched the whole thing in a weekend and I'm done talking about it. I'm just waiting for Jessica Jones now. So I'm waiting for each series as opposed to each episode. So you lose a lot by doing that as well. Honestly, I don't care. I, just, I really don't care. I just don't. It just as long as I got good television and uh, there was pros and cons to both. And I just think it was great television. I can't wait for the next season. Isn't this kind of akin to some of the business decisions you have to make for Star Trek Online? Because don't you get a lot of kind of whining in the forums like, oh, I want all the fleet stuff to be unlockable in a weekend. Oh, why don't you drop all of the episodes of this next arc, you know, when you started the anniversary? Yeah. Whereas yeah. you have to gatekeep it a little bit to maintain interest over a longer time and really yeah, absolutely. build I mean, with the stories alone, right? Because people want more stories. So we drop, usually drop like one or two stories every every three months, you know, as opposed to dropping a whole bunch. Well, frankly, some of this just mitigated by the fact that we can't produce it as fast enough as we want to. But yeah, we have to spread things out over time to keep people interested uh, and keep coming back. If you throw it all at once and then have a long lull, 18 months or whatever, how long it's going to be till we see season two of Discovery, you get drop off. People will just drop off. And then, yeah, you've got, we're constantly having that balance of people want new stuff. Here's a bunch of new stuff. I want it now. Okay, you get it now. It says, there's nothing to do. It's like, okay, so we'll <laughs> hold off some stuff. Or we'll take it longer to get that. Well, I want, it's too long. I, take, I want it faster. So it's an impossible thing to solve to make every Hi, kitty. Um, to make everybody happy. But it is very effective from a business standpoint. And for, we get the same effect. Yeah, you guys podcast about the episodes, speculate about what's going to happen next, where's the story going. And social media picks it up. And you're absolutely right. It's the same effect. It's effective. I wholeheartedly agree and believe in that in that effectiveness of keeping the buzz going from week to week i mean even 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 here on priority one we we ask our our listeners to engage with us during the week because we want the conversation to keep going my point for this season of discovery i think that it was written with with varying goals in mind. I think that this was a gamble for some people. I feel like it was a gamble for some people in suits high above, an artistic endeavor for the boots on the ground. And whereas something like Babylon, like you mentioned earlier, Robert, was planned for five years, even the original series planned for five years, right? Gene Roddenberry's original vision was a five-year mission. Right, but he had no continuity of story to take it through. He just no, was no, hoping to no. get five seasons of a show didn't. that was very episodic. Right, and I feel as if though Discovery launched on ambiguity in terms of the production, in terms of the writing, that that's what, that's what we ended up getting. We, this is a result of pleasing as many people in, who pull the strings as possible. Again, I compare this show to something like The Walking Dead or Game of Thrones or Westworld or whatnot, and episodes are written specifically to be week to week, right? Whereas I don't feel like Discovery was written in that way. 
I don't feel like Discovery was written to be a week-to-week -week kind of show, but instead a binge-worthy show. I completely and wholeheartedly agree that the conversation and the fact that we're podcasting is great, but I wanted to see more of Laurel. I wanted to see more of Stamets and, and, and his drive to make the mycelial drive work. I wanted to see more of Tilly and how she had to engage in the mirror universe, which is a testament to the great writing that happened in this season, right? Like this is great writing that I wanted to see more of it. I wish that they spent more time with it. The acting and performances were just fantastic from beginning to end. And I just wish that they would have taken more time instead of trying to cram it into season one and keep their fingers crossed that enough hype was gonna trigger a season two. Well, you bring up two issues there, right? Because one is how long was it? And two versus how was it broken up to flow? And I would actually argue Game of Thrones is much more written as should be just watched in a single binge than Star Trek, because there is no memorable episode of Game of Thrones. It's just a bunch of things happen and some more things happen and more things happen. And then overall, it takes you through a long period of time. Whereas Star Trek, you know, there were individual, you know, the idea that each episode had a story and a plot and something self-contained is much more week to week than something that has no real clear, you know, who remembers what episode four versus episode six were in a season of Game of Thrones. But you can put like names to them in Star Trek. Robert's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I think overall, I don't think anybody here on this panel does not or did not enjoy this first season of Discovery. Because even for the criticisms that we've offered on the show, mm -hmm. it's mostly because we wanted more of what we saw. And loose ends were tied up so quickly that we, we were eager to see more of it. I don't think any of us here are disappointed in the first season of, of Star Trek Discovery. And on the contrary, believe that it has reinvigorated the luster of what the Star Trek community has been, like you mentioned earlier, Robert. The ability to communicate and engage in a dialogue and have these discussions from week to week has been amazing since September of 2017. It's just been so exciting. And thank you both to Al, to Robert for joining us each week, at, whether it's on screen or as a guest host for a special episode to discuss this season. I don't know about you guys, it sucks that we have to wait almost a year and a half for season two. On that, yeah, I think we time. all agree. Yeah, I agree. The one thing I will add to the argument, just one quick thing, another downside of it being not bingeable, is that a lot of people who watched it in the beginning and felt like it's not their Trek and it's too dark and it's not going to, they really don't care about the vision of Star Trek, who may have left, who may have just instead stayed through and watched the whole thing if it was bingeable and realizing, yeah, this is really about a Star Trek family and this is about Star Trek ideals. It was a genesis of how this crew became a family and they may have missed out. And I hope now that it's out that they come and they binge it, they watch it through to see how much this truly is Star Trek. Well, that wraps up the very last on screen until season two of Star Trek Discovery. A big thanks to Al, Captain Gecko Rivera, lead designer for Star Trek Online, and Dr. Robert Hurt of NASA JPL for joining us on this episode here of Priority One to recap and give a final review of the first season of Star Trek Discovery. Thank you so very much. Message coming in, sir. Hailing frequencies. Open. See? Well, Captains, this is the part of the show where we open hailing frequencies for your incoming messages. 
Episode 354's community question was, How did you watch the season finale of Star Trek Discovery? With friends? At a Trek party? On the bridge of your ship? From Patreon, Joshua Selig writes, In the bedroom. It was a thrilling episode. Speech at the very end was perfectly Trek. I would like to know what will happen in season two. Perhaps Tholians or even Gary Seven? I would love to see Tholians. I would love, love to see Discovery do Tholians. Just in a way that you couldn't do it back in the day. Why? You saw Tholians and Enterprise, and that was pretty decent for the CGI that they had. What is this Enterprise of which you speak? I haven't seen that. Ah. Okay, fine. I take that back, but I would still love to see Discovery do Tholians. Ah. Also from Patreon, Jacob Patterson says, Sitting at the house in the living room with my mom. Kind of disappointed on how it ended, but hey... When you come back from the mirror universe and you only have two episodes to finish the Klingon War, just wish they would have thought that through more. I think we mentioned before, actually, I have a feeling that that was a little bit cobbled together late in the game because it was only supposed to be 13 episodes and then it ended up being 15. Do you think if we had two episodes of 13 that were after the mirror universe might have not felt quite so out of kilter? What I mean is, originally this series was going to be 13 episodes. Yes. Yes. If they had cut both the Harry Mudd and the Sarek episode, we probably still would have been there. No, what I meant was, if the Harry Mudd and Sarek episodes had still been in there, and then the storyline up to and including the end of the Mirror Universe had only been 11 episodes, would we have felt that those last two were quite as rushed as they were? I don't know. Yes. We talked a little bit about this on on screen, is that I don't think that it had anything to do with the number of episodes as it did the pressure that the writers had to do something in 15 episodes to tell some kind of a particular arc. Via Patreon, David S. writes in, in a state of utter disappointment. Oh, God. Now, I'm curious because I thought David S. was not watching Discovery. So, David, you'll have to write in and share your experience because I was under the impression you were not watching Discovery until you could binge it. From Twitter, Chris Keen says, I watched every episode of Discovery the same way I've watched every genre of a new Star Trek series. Back in the house I grew up in, watching it with my dad. The only thing that changed is we swapped out beer for green tea. 10.30 in the morning just didn't seem appropriate for beer. It's beer clock anywhere, Chris. From Facebook, Jonathan writes in, Here in Brazil, the episodes are released by Netflix in the morning, so I watched while having lunch. In the end, I stood with my fork in my mouth, clapping my hands. Way to go. That's an excellent visual. (laughs) That is an excellent. And actually, I think that's how a lot of us felt. Just kind of stunned and excited and elated and stunned at the same time. That's an excellent description. And thanks for writing in all the way from Brazil. kidding. It's awesome. Finally, from PriorityOnePodcast.com, Kandaris said, Great episode. I watched the finale of Discovery in my room. There were parts of the episode where I laughed out loud. I was a little teary near the end. Great scene. I think that's really descriptive of how a lot of us watched it. Most of the series I watched in my room, and had I not been in a room full of other people, there would still have been bits I'm confident that I would have laughed out loud and cried a little bit at the end. I agree. Well, that wraps up episode 355 of Priority One, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. For more great podcasts like Mission Log, Women at Warp, and The Trek Files, visit podcasts.roddenberry.com. But before we go, here's a reminder of our community question this week. 
What ship would you like to see 3D printed from Star Trek Online? Captains, you know we love those responses. So leave them for us on our website at PriorityOnePodcast.com, on our Facebook page at Facebook.com forward slash PriorityOnePodcast, or tweet us via at PriorityOnePod. Don't miss a thing from the Star Trek multiverse. Catch our episodes every Friday by pointing your favorite podcast app to feeds.priorityonepodcast.com. You can even join in on the fun while we record our episodes live on Tuesday nights at around 11 p.m. Eastern on Facebook. Keep an eye on our social media channels for details. And if that wasn't enough, you can join us in Star Trek Online in the Priority One Armada. If you're interested, just head over to PriorityOneArmada.com and sign up today. And don't forget that every Saturday night, the Armada takes to our Twitch channel, where they review the latest Star Trek Online and Armada news, as well as providing highlights from some of the amazing members in the Armada. Each week, we team up with you, the viewers, our listeners, and earn things like reputation marks and dilithium. With regular giveaways, there is something for all Star Trek Online players, new and old. Just follow us over on twitch.tv forward slash Priority One. This episode of Priority One Podcast is brought to you by our patrons through patreon.com. Find out more and add your support at patreon.com forward slash Priority One. Even if you can't make a financial contribution, please help spread the word about the show and invite your fellow Trekkies. It's your support that keeps us going. Don't forget to tune in to Priority One Productions' Guard Frequency Podcast at GuardFrequency.com. Now, with a brand new format, the Guard will take you inside the universe of our favorite space sims, including a tabletop adventure played out by your hosts. And our latest endeavor, Heroes Rise, brings you up to date with the world of Dungeons & Dragons. Learn all about the latest publications, tools, tips, tricks, and traps in less time than it takes to skin a wyvern. Head over to HeroesRisePodcast.com to discover their secrets. Thanks to our audio team led by Michael McDonald, with assistance from Brandon Parker and Jake Morgan, and support from Midnight Shadow 7 of Hollow Sweet Media. And speaking of Jake, we are grateful to announce once again his promotion to associate producer on the show. Thanks to his dedication, he helps this podcast to continue to produce the professional quality that you've come to expect. Thanks to our graphic artist and web designer, Henry Pomper. Thanks to the composer of our theme music, Chris Watts. Thanks to our syndication partners, Subspace Radio and Trek Radio. Thanks to Patreon associate producers, Navy Boats Lou and Jim DeVico. But most importantly, Captains, a big thanks to you, the Star Trek community, and our listeners. Because without your ongoing support, none of this would be possible. Enemy ship on sensors. Red alert. Shields up. Ready weapons. Engage. complete. 
Burnham and Tyler beam to the Klingon ship and place sensors in the predes- pre <clears throat> excuse me predetermined pre predesignated I'm just guessing I was guessing I'm not reading I'm just guessing Burnham and Tyler the beam to the Klingon ship the doctor just schooled you <laughs> predesignated is a word it is that's fine yeah so shh mm. you as well as the deceased Dr. Culber, who both explained the mycerial... Uh, mycerial... Mycerial network. Hey, that's a new morning... A new morning cereal. <laughs> hey. Make sure you have your mycerial this hey, morning. Ki- hey, kids. Hey, I think we have a oh, title man. for this week's show. Well, actually, Mira Stamets might be the mycerial killer. That's uh, <laughs> close. Maybe just cause of- Just a power source, right? That That makes sense. Sorry, I'm trying to science advise on this right now. (laughs) Just like, just you just keep your expertise to yourself, okay? Right. (laughs) I'll play with my ship. For more great podcasts, like Mission, like Mission at Warp, (laughs) is what I was about to say. Uh, It's what, yeah. For more great podcasts, like Mission Log, Women at Warp, and the (laughs) Brad. Priority mission at Warp Files. <laughs> it's the best podcast ever, <laughs> and the listeners love it. Podcast.roddenberry.com, the Roddenberry Podcast Network.